the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. As I said in the previous hour, we're kind of dedicating today to education, and uh, especially as schools are starting to gear up again and start the fall semester, unbelievably, in August. It is a light to do so with someone I have known a very long time who is one of the um, great education specialist and experts in our community, really in the country. We're delighted that he's here in Phoenix. Eric Twist, Eric with a K, Eric T-W-I-S-T, Twist. He is the principal partner and president at Arcadia Education. I've known the Twist family since uh, really the moment I have moved here. Uh, In an interesting way, Eric and I are probably uh, more more contemporaries, but his dad is easily one of my best friends. And if there's anything good that goes on in this community in politics or education, I can guarantee you dollars to donuts. One of the twists had their finger on that scale, had something to do with it. So it's a blessing and a privilege to have you, Eric Twist, in studio with us oh, today. Well, it's a blessing and a privilege to be here as always. Tell, tell the audience, you're not a first-time guest. It's the first time in your studio, and it's been a while since I've had you. My fault. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, a little autobiography, <laughs> and how you came to be doing uh, what you are doing at Arcadia Education and what that is. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, native Phoenician. Uh, um proud to be here. I was telling you before we got on that we're looking forward to getting up into the mountains. I love the state. Uh, so um, uh, proud to be from Arizona. Um, yeah, I married to Allison for 20 years and uh, we've got six boys, all boys, uh, which is amazing. Uh, our uh, oldest is uh, going into a sophomore year at ASU and then the rest are uh, uh, at uh, the same school together, a senior, a freshman, a seventh grader, a fifth grader, a third grader. <laughs> so uh, they keep us young, which is which is great. But uh, yeah, the uh, Arcadia education really came uh, out of this conviction. I, uh, when we were building Great Hearts uh, uh, and I was with Great Hearts for 15 years, you know, we got a lot of a lot of things right during that time. We made big mistakes, too. And you learn great lessons through the through through those mistakes. And and something really over those years dawned on me about the Ed Reform Movement nationally. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the Ed Reform Movement nationally right now more than ever uh, is a conservative, traditionalist, right of center movement. Uh, that's the part of the, Ed Ref- uh, the, the sort of education landscape that has all the energy. And it has the energy because the vision and mission that those schools are putting forward to the market are, are really attractive. You know, whether you're right of center, left of center, uh, mom and dad tend to agree on this. They want academic rigor. uh, They want moral formation. They want joy. uh, And they want as much as possible an apolitical school environment. And it's uh, ironically, maybe you might say it is it is that sort of right of center, traditionalist, Christian conservative, you might call it. I mean, uh, none of these fully captured the movement, but it's those schools that are. Uh, advancing what the market really wants. And, and when you think about what parents got to see during COVID, mm-hmm. 
they didn't like it. Mm-hmm. They didn't like it. And and so it has moved more and more of the market uh, back to classical, back to basics, traditionalist schools. Catholic schools are growing again for the first time. Christian private schools are growing again for the first time in many generations. Um, and so the great strength of this movement is that it's it has a deep anthropology. Of, its vision and missions are strong. But like most of the nonprofit sector, like, like the church itself or, or – um, uh, well, education, you might say, just just writ large, um, while its vision and missions can be strong, they tend to suffer with operational dis- disciplines, business acumen, you know, the tedious back office stuff. You know, most people get into education. They love the curriculum. They love the pedagogical work. They love the philo- the philosophy. They like of the education. arte, but you're working on techne. Techne, yeah. right? And and we think there's a real miss in the market. When you look at the firms out there, <clears throat> and there are uh, there's an embarrassment of riches of them that will help you with curriculum and pedagogy and the philosophy of education. When you look at the firms nationwide that do your Deloitte, McKinsey, Price, Waterhouse work for schools, not only are there not a lot of them, but the ones that do exist have all gone woke. There's no real alignment between the thing that's animating these school systems and the deep need that they have to bring operational disciplines to the work. There's no alignment in the culture there. And so Arcadia Education is bringing that alignment. So the reason, Eric Twist, that I was uh, so interested in having you come in today was because uh, someone sent me a copy of a commencement address you gave to Lincoln Preparatory, uh, Lincoln Prep. And I want to get to that in a moment, a few things on the way. But real quick, Lincoln Prep is what? Lincoln Prep is a uh, a prized school within the Great Hearts uh, system. It's down in South Chandler. Uh, It's part of uh, K-12. There's Archway Lincoln and Lincoln Prep. A dear friend of mine, Alex Julian, is the headmaster uh, out there at uh, at Lincoln Prep. And it's it's honestly one of the best high schools in the state. And um, uh, it was an honor to be able to give their commencement. Well, you said everything there is to say about education in that commencement address. We will get to it. I mean, I've spent uh, a long time, many decades, working with uh, with educational professionals and speech writing and these kinds of things in that field. And uh, this is as good as I've ever seen, Eric. Gosh. So kudos to you. And I don't know if we can get it out to the public some way. Is okay. there a way to do it? Maybe. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure, figure it, it out. out. Thank you. Your website is uh, ArcadiaEd.com. Maybe we'll get it there. Maybe we can get it out some other way. Eric Twist, you talked about education reform and how all the energy on education reform, if I'm quoting you right, is – Right of center is a phrase you kind of used. For lack I, of a better phrase. Yeah, for yeah. lack of let's, – let's work on that for a second because um, I was speaking with, uh, with someone the other day and I was saying it seems to me there's two views of education going on in this country right now. And we're primarily talking elementary and secondary, K through 12. There seems to be two views of education going on. There's the views, let's say, that much of this audience would embrace where they think you send your kid to school – to learn a little bit about math, a little bit about English, a little bit about science, a little bit about geography, a little bit perhaps about civics and history. That's that's one view. You might call it a traditional view. There is another view of education, which is maybe the kind of thing you were talking about that a lot of parents learned about during COVID, which is where the teachers aren't so interested in that as they are really in using the classroom and using education as something else, not about outcomes and achievements in those areas, not even perhaps instruction in those areas, but about something else. I would call it propagandizing. I would call it um, 
I would call it uh, using the classroom as uh, one it was a phrase an old uh, Neil Postman used once. He retracted it later, but teaching as a subversive activity, this notion that we get from um, uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed, Apollo Ferrer, that teaching is supposed to be the way so many media outlets now think their job is to be not so much to report the news, but to shape it. There's a view of education that seems not so much to teach the basics and the classics, but to shape political ideological viewpoints within the classroom. Two views of education. I don't know if you agree or disagree or want to distill on that. Well, I think it's obvious. Okay. You know, I, I, and, and again, I think that's what the market is responding to. So, and, and you know, you can get into the nuances here in the, in, in the case that you know, education should shape, it should form. Uh, it, it, but it should do it properly. And there's a great debate going on about what, what that actually means. And again, when you look at the classical school m- movement or the liberal arts movement it's, as it's conceived of within the K-12 uh, sector, you know, there's a return to this notion that, uh, well, yes, uh, uh, schools should have a position, right? They should have an understanding of what the human person is. But, but then how you shape that, right? What, what are the, what's the role that the educator plays alongside mom and dad? In shaping that, what's the dance there? How is that choreographed, and and how do you honor and respect the role of the teacher? Certainly, that has an incredibly important job in our civilization, but in concert with uh, mom and dad, and and you know, we always used to say at, at Great Hearts that that you know, mom and dad want to pick their kid up at the end of the day better than they drop them off, and what they really mean by that is that they're they're learning to 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 grasp their own dignity, mm-hmm. right? Their sense of worth and, and, and the agency that they have. And, and what they do with that will ultimately be up to them, yeah. right? Um, and you hope that you can give them the very best of what's been thought and said, that it, it, it shapes them and, and, and helps them to make good moral decisions. But what you don't do is what we see in so many school environments today, which is take politics as the final end or goal of education. That what we're doing is, what we're now doing is trying to create um, a, a, a particular type of voter, right? And, yeah. and someone who's More loyal, activist, yeah. yeah, activist and, and somebody who's loyal to a very narrow worldview. I mean, the, the, the thing about to go to what I know so well, classical education is that, you know, classical education makes, uh, possible a whole host of different worldviews mm-hmm. that you wrestle with, right? In community and in trying to further on civilization. What we have now is this narrowing where the only things that are worth knowing are of such minute scope and only favorable to one political party today that it's not education at all. It is what you said. It is actually indoctrination. Yeah, and a shrinking of the mind. Let me let me let me pick up on that when we come right back after this commercial break. My guest is Eric Twist. He is the uh, principal partner and president of Arcadia Education, ArcadiaEd.com. He and I'll be right back. Little Trini Lopez for you there. Eric Twist is my guest from Arcadia Education, ArcadiaEd.com. We're talking education, and we're going to get to his tremendously important commencement address that he gave the students at Lincoln Prep uh, this uh, year, a few months back. Before we do, a few more things on some, some, some of the things you were talking about in education, Eric. Uh, you mentioned the importance of the teacher, and you mentioned the importance of the parents and the relationship between parent and teacher. I think that's the title of an old Heim Gnot book, by the way. Do you know his work? G-I-N-O-T-T, an old psychologist no. between parent and teacher. Anyway, my 
understanding and my experience when I was doing ed reform at the federal level. I don't do local. I, I knew it once upon a time federally. My sense of a great school amongst the attributes was a school that wanted and welcomed parent and parental involvement. On the other hand, or by the same token, if you read some of the research, particularly I was fond of the research of a guy named Eric Hanischik over at Stanford, the importance of the quality of the teacher cannot be underestimated. The importance of the quality of the teacher is perhaps the most decisive element during the school day. So between those two, there's an interesting little bridge, uh, parental involvement, but the excellence of the teacher. And then there's this weird thing coming from the outside, kind of this drive-by that we've been hearing more and more over the last two years, really, but within the last year, ferociously, from the president of the United States, some of the teachers' unions, saying things like, the kids aren't their parents during the school day. The kids are ours, not theirs. You know, it's kind of a weird isolation of the parent from the education at the same time that it's very clear to a lot of people that teacher quality in a lot of our schools, not all, a lot of them, has not been going up. I wonder if, if you might square or, or circle some of this, the importance of the teacher, but also the importance of parental involvement. Well, you, I, neither can be underestimated, yeah, right? No. Uh, you I nailed put a it. lot I mean, out there, I know. It's, well, and I, you'll let, wind it. I, I, preach, I, I appreciate you bringing this up because I, uh, I feel compelled almost to speak directly to all school leaders right now and to Please. say, you know, one, one thing that, that we must understand is that w when you're in the education business, uh, what you go to market with uh, is a teacher. It is a person. Your product is a person. And those are those are crude terms to use in a sense. You just market or business terms, but a, a lot of school leaders miss this, and they actually miss it in in the uh, classical school movement all the time. Where you think, well, no, I'm going to market with a curriculum. You know, uh, I'm I'm going to market with a mission and a vision. Well, those things are important. You better obsess about those things and care about them deep, deeply. But at the end of the day, if you want to know what a school is advancing. If you want to know what it really believes, if you want to know what it really loves, look at the aggregate convictions of its adults okay. that are leading it. Right? Okay. The teachers are everything. And you can test this, by the way, too. If mom comes to you and said, says, Mrs. Smith is not cutting it in the classroom, your answer cannot be to them, yeah, but we have Aristotle right. or we teach phonics. Yeah. Right. We do Singapore math. It was like, well, those are all great things. But you can put the best tools in the hands of bad people. Uh, and and not build beautiful things with them. So so you're absolutely right. The teacher really does matter, and and so school leaders should be obsessing more uh, about how they're building the right types of recruitment pipelines, uh, how they're uh, uh, thinking about the very uh, 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 disciplined process of how you hire and onboard and resource and review and fire your faculty or promote. Your faculty, we need people getting better at, at that process. I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, the reason why Great Hearts has dominated uh, this market in Arizona uh, is it, there, are a lot, there, there are a lot of kind of variables that come up, but uh, it, it's teacher recruitment pipelines and the way that it has thought about the people and what it's really going to market with, I think that set it apart more than anything else. And the welcoming of parental involvement. Well, that and that's so key, right? So, and what's funny, Seth, is that if you understand deeply that you're going to market with a person, that your product is a person, yeah. you've already leapfrogged the rest of your competitors because now you've understand this is a deeply human endeavor that's going on. 
right? You're forming human souls, so you have to think about the anthropology of what, what do you think the final end or goal is of a human person? What does flourishing look like for the human person? So you're, you're already obsessing about, well, what, what, how does that change the curricular decisions that you make and all that? But you're, you're, you're already talking about education differently than they are down the street. I mean, down the street is the best that they get is what college and career readiness, yeah. whatever the heck that means. Right. right? right. And, and it's, it's, so they're, they're, they're vacuous, right. In their understanding, but, but you see the best schools, they're obsessing about people. They care about people and they care about the individuals. If that's where, if that's your starting place, then you also understand that mom and dad are depositing into your school, their most Greatest precious trust. resource. Right. Right. And they want an ROI every day, right? And and what's great about uh, I would say the the Arizona market is um, we we woke up knowing this every day at Great Hearts. We could go out of business, yeah. But and, but going out of business meant we could it actually it'd be better to say we knew we could go out of mission. We could the mission could be we were full you know fully nonprofit and 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 we were set up to serve families and to serve students. And if we didn't take them seriously, they would go somewhere else because there were other options. And so that's that's one thing that we don't talk about enough sure. in, in Arizona that that the last thirty years of school choice have created a sector that has to take mom and dad seriously because mom and dad for the first time in the history of the country had choices. Yeah. They had choices, and that's good for the education sector. Eric, a uh, couple minutes in this segment left, and I know I will get emails and calls if I don't put this on the table as well. We talked about the importance of the parental involvement or the welcoming of parental involvement, the importance of the quality of the teacher. Needs to be said the importance of a strong principle too, right? Oh. Right. The teacher oh. can't do anything without a strong principle. Well, and in they most places- They set the entire temperature, right? <laughs> yeah. In most places, it's the principle that's making those hiring decisions right. too. So their principles are setting culture by who they hire first and foremost, right? Who are they letting into the classroom? And and again, I go back to principles need to be, you know, uh, John Senior said a school is a faculty, okay. right? It's not a curriculum. It's not, and so the principal builds their school by building their faculty, okay. right? And uh, you get a leader that doesn't understand that, understands that, or, or or doesn't build well. And you know, you can you can put the best books on the shelves, you can put the best curriculum. You have a great professional development days. It it won't matter. And they have to back up the teachers. The well, good yeah, teachers, they, right? Absolutely. That, that, that's really one of the complaints I hear. It's it's interesting. It's not when you talk to teachers they're for, and the problems and the concerns and the frustrations they have. Usually it's not salary that comes up first. Usually it's other things. Now, I know the inundation of the news is that it's about – it's usually not. It's – Discipline in the classroom, it's backup from the principal. It's other things, isn't it? There's so much data on this. We did it internally. You see other big systems that have done it. Uh, Work-life balance is huge. Um, But but, uh, uh, schools that that resource their teachers well, hire well and then resource their teachers, are clear about expectations, but then – uh, not, they don't just levy expectations. They they provide the resources to meet those expectations. Um, that leads to a happier teacher, right? And classroom management is a big thing. I mean, one of the one of the most important things that a school leader can do, Seth, is ensure that they have got the backs of their teachers when there are discipline issues. Right. That's, right? that's trust your teachers. Yeah. Trust your teachers and hold children accountable and don't let the parents strong arm you into putting uh, kids that are constantly disrupting the whole back into the classroom uh, when uh, when when, you know, things need to be dealt with. Just like a few teachers that aren't good can change the entire school or put a mark 
or mar on the entire profession. Again, I'm looking at some of Eric Hanischek's research. He says it's only about 8 to 10 percent. So, too, could a few students. Yeah. Right. Change it. Let me take a quick break. Eric Twist and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Eric Twist is my guest. He is the partner and principal partner and president at Arcadia Education, ArcadiaEd.com. I was sent his commencement address at Lincoln Prep, his 2023 commencement address, and it's everything uh, you want uh, to hear about in education. Eric, you address your students. You address the students, um, interestingly enough, with some – the hard stuff. I mean, you're not you're not giving them uh, you're not giving them the easiest stuff. You go right to so- Sophocles. You go right to the importance of arts. You go right to the importance of um, beauty and classical notions of beauty. And then you kind of do an interesting thing. I'm not sure what the uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure what the rhetorical device here is. There, I'm sure there's a word for it. I don't know the paradox uh, something. <laughs> And you give them um, the music of the day. You contrast uh, what 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 was the culture of of yesteryear and what they have been seeped and soaked in in their time at uh, Lincoln Prep. As you're warning them that they're going into a world where some of the most popular lyrics are from a song. Man, I feel just like a rock star. All my brothers got the gas, and they always be smoking like a Rasta with me. Call up an Uzi. And show up, man, them, the shadas. What are you doing here, Eric? What are you doing? <laughs> well, I, I'm uh, being playful to one and, and, and certainly when, you know, as someone that's been in the education world a long time, you know that when you're trying to get a teenager's attention, oh. you know, uh, you, you, you've got to speak their language a little bit. But I was, I was setting up a, um, uh, a situation. Sophocles to shock well, Yeah, well, that's right. So, uh, you know, it, it, it w- w- I think it's safe to say, safe to say, it's just true that our art as a society reflects something of what we deeply believe, of what we value. And if you look at what's most popular today, you know, you think about the folk art of today, it it reflects uh, in the aggregate uh, what we love. It it shows what we love. And, and, and the sad reality is that what it reflects today are things that are not worth loving, right? They're, they're base, they're low. Um, and and so when you when you sort of juxtapose that uh, with the art of yesteryear, you know, it, it it not only saddens you a little bit, but it should be jarring. It should it, and it leads to questions. And those were the questions that I was putting before the students. And I think then when you think about the education that those students were provided and you set that up against Post Malone, you know, I mean, it it, it writes itself at that point. There is this move, and you talked about it in one of our earlier segments, you know, about ed reform. And we, I think, for as we admitted, said, for lack of a better term, it's considered kind of in the right of center sphere. It would not have been 40 years ago what we're questing after, what we're seeking in education. 40, 50 years ago would not have been considered political at all. It would have been considered this is education for the past 150, 200 years steeping our children in the best our culture has to offer. And the best our culture had to offer didn't change. It probably wouldn't have had a commencement address that talked talked about whatever the popular music of the day was, whether it was the hip parade or whether it was, you know, the lyrics of Buddy Holly. It just probably wouldn't have even come to that because that was not even a question or a concern. 
And it wouldn't have been political either. It would have been your Plato's. It would have been your Aristotle's. It would have been your Sophocles. It would have been your Shakespeare's. And no one would have thought twice about it because they themselves weren't political. As you say, you can teach Aristotle and Plato and, Plato and end up being a liberal as much as you – Alan Bloom That's was right. a Democrat. Yeah. Alan Bloom, who wrote the best translation of Plato and who wrote the closest, was a Democrat, for example. Yes. Um, today, that is political. To teach Plato is political. It seems like – or it's right of center. Well, well uh, let's get clear on this. What, what has actually happened is that in our culture today, everything is political. Okay. Um, and that's because we don't believe in objective truth anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't have any objective sense of beauty, any objective sense of goodness, any objective sense of truth, right? There isn't anything that stands outside of us, we've been told for many generations now, uh, that we're all attached to. And so all you have left then is power. Mm-hmm. So all you have left then is, left then is politics. Mm-hmm. And, and so because that's the lens that the uh, majority of the educators who are now in our schools have grown up with, this is all they know, Seth. Yeah. This is all, how could it how could it be anything other than politics? How how could you say? I mean, this is this is what would confuse you know l- uh, progressive listeners if you have them if they're listening if you're out there. I think they would honestly say, uh, well, no, because there aren't any objective standards. All there is are acts of power, and so you better make sure you choose the right ones. And and these educators have chosen, and what they've said is anything that is old. Uh, is likely problematic, right? It's almost all problematic. So it's all got to be deconstructed. It's all got to be dismantled. It's all got to be thrown away and reconstructed with some, you know, utopian dream, which, by the way, is always shifting and is is completely unsettled because it's because it's always shifting because there is no center. There's no mooring to it. Let me let me there take is a no quick mooring. break. Short short segment here. We'll have a longer one coming back. Eric Twist from Arcadia Education. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Eric Twist is my guest. He from Arcadia Education. He a uh, great educational uh, scholar, expert, and professional. ArcadiaEd.com, his website if you want to learn more about him. We're talking about his uh, tremendous commencement address to Lincoln Prep this year where he imparts – he is imparting – Eric, you are imparting three lessons to the graduating class at Lincoln Prep. The first lesson relates to what we were just talking about in the previous segment, and it might be the most controversial in some respects. Um, it's warning the students about the culture they're about to enter, leaving the culture they've been seeped in, which is a conversation with, uh, I don't know, 500, 800 years of, uh, of philosophy, 800 years of art, 800 years of classic and Western civilization into something new. Um, you actually, uh, you use the word vulgar uh, in here, um, and you talk about the difference between learning classically and learning in a realm of self-importance, where the self and the phrase you use is self-expression, the uh, unrestrained uh, the unrestrained individual satisfaction is more important um, than learning. It's almost a lack of humility, if you will, that there's not someone old or beyond or before us who has something to teach us, uh, that the truth is within ourselves, and the most important thing is not just body 
or bodily autonomy, but intellectual autonomy, mm. self-expression and vulgarity. Would you like to say a little bit more about that? Well, you know, I think it all stems probably from, uh, well, it stems from a few places, but Aristotle comes to mind immediately. You know, I, I think about this as a, this is a, a, a sort of modern rendering uh, of, of uh, his thought, but you know, the happy life is tied to the moral life. And that moral life isn't something that you construct for yourself any more than you constructed your own body. You know, I think this is something that um, uh, that it's almost frightening that we're sending kids into this world that says not only there's no objective truth, there's no objective understanding of your own self or beauty or nothing. But but think about our own bodies. You know, we didn't come up with this. Right. It's not our doing, right? We inherited it. We woke up, and and there are there are laws that govern it. There's, you know, if you can use your reason to even understand the proper use of your body, you know, it tells you a story, a story that you didn't write, and and that's just one example of many within the world that there is this world out out there you have to contend with. It it exists before you, right? And and so I think. When I look at these kids, I mean, you look at them up there as a father and you just think you're you're going into a world that's just lying to you constantly in every possible way. But it's lying to you at deep, deep levels, metaphysical level, levels, philosophical levels. And so at least trying to shake them a little bit and to say, listen, there is a moral order. And if you want to find true happiness, you must submit your life to that moral order. And it's not really about self-expression or the un adulterated expression of the self. I was reading about art once upon a time back in the late 80s when there was the debate about, you know, what government, what art government should fund, what business the government should have in funding art. You remember the Maplethorpe stuff and all that kind of thing. And Walter Burns, another student of Leo Strauss, he said, you know, Probably the probably this all began when the Supreme Court started talking about the First Amendment, not as freedom of speech, but as freedom of expression, mm. words that are not actually in the First Amendment. But when you think of the word expression, the etymology really is a pressing out and a forcing out. It doesn't allow for reason. It doesn't allow for what we really think of as um, as intellectual or in any kind of a sense uh, contemplative considerations in speech. It's really just about forcing out um, pressing and squeezing and it doesn't really it doesn't really it, it, it really doesn't speak to beauty or art or consideration or reflection upon things beautiful it's about getting out what's inside of you almost like going to the bathroom yeah if you if you're only anchored to the what what's interior yeah. right uh, you're, you're you're unmoored yeah yeah. And and that leads to a lot of confusion. And that's pretty much where, where we're at today, where, yeah, self-expression, whatever interiority, whatever emotions might be in you, you know, you just you, – you've got to let those out. And society should let you let those out in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and it has led to so much depression. We don't talk about it enough. People are so – when you're unmoored from reality, when, 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 all, when all you are told – is that your happiness is found by putting your feelings out there as the only compass Mm -hmm. for where you should go, Mm -hmm. you're going to find yourself wandering, Mm -hmm. lost. And normalizing delusion, quite honestly. Normalizing delusion. And it is not an act of love in this society that we don't remind one another, oh, no, 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 no. No, there is something to anchor yourself to. There is a reality. Your own body tells you a truthful story. Right, right. Right? It does. But if you unmoor them from your own self... Think about what that does, and especially to children, especially to children. So, so our, our society is, is, has moved so far away 
from what it takes in order to actually find happiness, that we, we, we see greater and greater acts of desperation uh, that are un, really undoing civilization. Do you allow the use of the word my truth in your house <laughs> or in your schools? I would hope the answer is no, because no, I think in fact, this is the real problem. In fact, this is one thing that's lost on people. And I, I'll give another plug to Great Hearts because I love it so much. Uh, you know, one of the things that's that's unique about Great Hearts, I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, they don't let cell phones uh, to be out, all the other things that we've been that we I say, like, I'm still there. It's hard to leave it. Uh, they've been doing it for a long time. But w- one of the, the great nuances of the Great Hearts education is that. No student opines at all until their senior year when they get to write their senior thesis. That's the moment that they get to say, I think this to be true. And then they write a 15-page essay on it, and then they defend it right uh, uh, publicly. Before that, everything else is you are going to sit and you are going to do a first read and a first listen and, and a first conversation around what others have said what others have written, what others have thought. And you, we are going to facilitate hours and hours and hours and hours of conversation about do you actually understand what so-and-so wrote? And this is important when reading uh, uh, works that are on both sides, we might say, of the political spectrum, whether you're reading Adam Smith yeah. or, or Rousseau or Hobbes or Locke or certainly Marx. Yeah. I mean, we have plenty of kids, I'll tell you, that will come to, uh, uh, to Karl Marx and say, well, I already... I already know this. I don't need to contend with this. And Greatheart says, no, you do need to contend with it. Before you can critique it, yeah. you better understand it. Right. We don't do enough of that right. today. But that's a metaphor, in a sense, for a, a greater truth within this life, is that there are things outside of you worth contending with. And the more you contend with them, the more that you'll find your place in this life. And we just don't tell that story enough to kids. I want to... Um our last segment is coming up, Eric, and it's it's the shortest of them, but it's kind of it's kind of neat that it turns out that way because it gets us to your third les- lesson, which is the importance of little things, little things done well. So when we come back, Eric Twist uh, and I will conclude the hour uh, going over his just tremendous. We got to get this out to the public somehow, Eric. We'll figure it out. Between the two of us, we can somehow figure out the techne of getting this Arte into the public. His Lincoln Prep 2023 commencement address. He and I will be right back. We're going to talk about the importance of little things. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's been a pleasure having Eric Twist with us for this hour, talking education. He's the principal partner and president at Arcadia Education ArcadiaEd.com. We were talking about his uh, 2023 Lincoln Prep commencement speech, three lessons. We went through the first two. Last one, you say something very interesting, Eric. Uh, the importance in the accumulation of little things done well and consistently through life. And then you do a little bit of a hat tip to Aristotle. Well, I, we're obsessed with mountaintop experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, every uh, you, you look at people just in constant pursuit of them, whether through travel or or, or concerts or um, uh, the 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 pursuit of the great startup or you know we we want these grand narratives and um, it's possible to have a grand narrative, but there are there are lessons out there from the saints and from great men and women uh, that I think it's it's important for us to return to in this time of chaos that um, some of the greatest lives are the ones that were lived quietly but consistently. You know, that people did uh, what was right in the little things over and over and over again. And the accumulation of those acts over the course of a life is greatness. 
and and I you know I talk about Florence Nightingale as yeah. as one example of that. You know, she was ridiculed, she was mocked, she was uh, seen as um, such a deviation from from uh, what the uh, the wisdom of the age was. I mean, these you know sort of uh, uh, holier than now and smarter than now uh, doctors, and here she was doing. Uh, seemingly just insignificant things, but they were transformational, you know, and they've changed healthcare forever. And so just trying to help these students in this, uh, in this commencement understand or get a picture of that if their lives are um, uh, lived in such a way that there are no grand moments, but, but they treat every single moral act as a, a mountaintop, mm-hmm. right? No matter how big or how small, uh, they will accomplish great things. It's a good lesson for teachers, too, about consistency. It's a good lesson for parenting about consistency, the consistent. I think that's an Aristotelian message. Dan Coates many years ago said one will not be um, provided the opportunity for greatness until he has perfected the mundane. Mm. And I think that that's kind of what you're getting at. You can't really ever achieve that mountaintop experience until you are able to walk and or crawl and then walk and get it right on the way up there, right? You don't start at 50,000 feet. You don't. And, and, and you actually have to be happy with the little acts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You have to seek them out uh, and not treat them actually as though they're little because none of them are. Nothing is. You've never ran into a mere mortal, as Lewis says. I, I do a commencement speech. I say, you never know what decision you make in life is going to end up being important or not. So teach, treat them all as important. Fair enough. It's a good way to live. Good way to live. You're a good guest to have. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you, Eric Twist. I'm Seth, and we'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.